My name is Molly Bechet. I work for National Skills Coalition. We are a network of networks, if you will. Uh, we're a coalition of business, labor, public workforce advocates, and community-based organizations. And we come together um, with the intent to uh, push forward state and federal policies that work for workers with the intent to um, focus on state and federal policies that invest in the skills that workers need so that they can be successful and that employers can be successful. And we create a more holistic and um, fundamentally uh, productive workforce for everyone that meets everyone's needs. Uh, so something that we did recently, in September we published our, it's a book and I love it because it's the first thing of this nature that we've been able to publish. Uh, it's called The Roadmap to Racial Equity, an Imperative for Workforce Development Advocates. And we're very excited to publish this and have this as our compendium on racial equity and what it means to create an inclusive workforce development system, education system, and support the needs of workers and employers um, on this essential issue. So I do want to say something that I really appreciate about this paper and what we've been able to put together is that um, in a lot of ways workforce development treats uh, racial equity and ethnic inclusion uh, as something uh, that's very focused on limitations and deficits. And what we really wanted to do is, while the limitations and deficits, we're talking about inequities in income, poverty, family wealth, educational attainment, and then the sort of blanket uh, inequities and opportunity and access that workers experience, uh, while those are all important, they are not the holistic story of what uh, people of color, immigrants, and people who have been generally excluded from opportunity, it's not the whole story of what they experience and why. So when we were talking about how to present this paper and how to have an honest conversation about racial equity in the workforce, we decided that we really needed to focus on public policy because none of this happened by accident. The inequities and systematized um, inequities in our workforce and education systems are not there by accident. Public policy played a crucial role in creating these inequities and public policy needs to create opportunities and uh, be a crucial part of the solution if we're going to have the measured impact that we generally need uh, to support workers, employers, and again, open that honest conversation. So again, while all of this is well documented, we decided to come with a new assets-based approach rather than this limitations and deficits-based approach. And with that, we came with something pretty simple and I think we can all get on board with. Uh, ethnic and racial diversity is a key strength full stop, and it should be embraced not only in the workforce and education systems, but throughout. But again, in our small slice, just focusing on workforce development, we'd like to start right there. So working from this place of honesty, we then came with two general approaches. Um, for the people who are generally swayed and more or less on our side as workforce advocates or aligned in the workforce development system, we came with the moral imperative. Racial equity, uh, ethnic equity uh, in the workforce development system is a moral imperative. It's what we should be doing, it's right, it's just. I think we're all more or less there on this, on this stage and in this room. But there are also um, economic advantages. If you give people the opportunity to get the skills and education that they need to fill jobs that can support them and also fill the needs of business, we can all uh, better improve our communities, economies, 
and have a more just and productive economy. So knowing that, uh, while I think we can all get behind those sort of ideas, we understand that not everyone is necessarily on board with that, and our workforce development system doesn't entirely support this view yet. Uh, I apologize if this is difficult to read, but uh, just a general uh, slice of information that shows the need. The current educational attainment uh, projected, this top line has 43% of jobs are going to require an associate's degree or higher, and as it stands right now, when you're breaking out the educational attainment levels by race, by ethnicity, by nativity, there are wide disparities. And not everyone is going to be able to adequately access this, these jobs, these opportunities, the family-sustaining wages that they need to be productive, to be successful, to feel whole and feel comfortable and uh, economically secure. And again, none of that happened by accident. These disparities have been shaped by structurally racist policies that pervade not only our workforce system, but the majority of systems that exist in the United States today, if we're being honest. So it goes without saying that these disparities have huge implications for families, for workers, for job seekers, but also for businesses and the general economy. So again, that moral imperative is clear to everyone in this room, to all, a lot of our partners, to policymakers, but some people still need to be convinced. Um, as it stands right now, we know that there's still a lot we can do to match opportunity, uh, match skills to opportunity. Uh, as it stands right now, middle skilled jobs, which is any job that requires skills training or education beyond the high school level and up to that four-year degree level, that can be anything like an associate's degree, it could be an apprenticeship, it could be any number of certificate programs. These middle skilled jobs right now um, account for more than half of the jobs available, not only in the entire United States, but in every single U.S. state, every single one. But again, as it stands, only 43% of uh, job seekers of workers are actually trained to that level, have been able to access the skills training that they need that would allow them to fill those jobs. So we know that people want these jobs, we know that people want these skills, but the fact that they are unable to access them is robbing people, economies, businesses of opportunity, and we know this gap isn't going to fill itself. If the gap isn't going to fill itself, we know that we need to be doing something different. What we've been doing isn't working, isn't filling the gaps, isn't providing the economic security that families and workers need. So what we can be doing is creating new policies that work more holistically for everyone, for whole families, for whole communities, and for whole systems. So again, back to this paper that we wrote, uh, you know, we took a stab at it. Uh, our paper, The Roadmap, outlines nine different policy recommendations, which uh, I would say are pretty wide-ranging, uh, and I don't have in this 15 minutes time to go through all nine of them. I do have executive summaries in the back, and I'm available later if you want to talk about them, but I'm just going to talk about one right now, one that you're probably familiar with. We're going to talk about apprenticeships. So we heard a little bit about apprenticeships already today, and for anyone who's unfamiliar, apprenticeships are uh, work-based learning uh, programs that provide contextualized skills training in classroom instruction in a lot of places, a good wage, if not a living wage, and tenure-based promotions for workers. 
Um, in a lot of ways, apprenticeships are economic engines, not just for job seekers and for families, but for employers who get that skilled workforce that is more likely to stay with their organization and lower their retention costs, creating a win-win-win um, in that workforce system. But I think we also know that apprenticeship, if you're going with the first thing that possibly pops into your mind, uh, of potentially a white construction worker from the 1960s, we know that apprenticeships have not always been accessible. And whether that's because of implicit bias or if that's because of Caucasian-only clauses in uh, builders' trade union constitutions, we know that that opportunity and access has not been afforded to everyone and a lot of times on purpose. So what we, one of the uh, recommendations that we put forth in our paper is to not only expand this access, but expand the on-ramps to access because just delivering the training doesn't necessarily say that you are affording equal opportunity or equitable opportunity to people who have been precluded from that opportunity before. Things like pre-apprenticeship programs help people get the introductory skills, the fundamental skills that they need so that on day one when they walk into that apprenticeship, they're ready to succeed with anyone else who hasn't had to surmount the barriers that they have at the same time. And tied to that, uh, if we're talking about what sort of equitable on-ramps that people need, we need to be thinking about not only the equitable on-ramps that people need, but how we serve not only the worker, but how we serve the entire existence, that ecosystem around the worker. And a lot of times that has to do with childcare. That has to do with digital literacy training. That has to do with flexible scheduling. That has to do with transportation stipends. If we're talking about a way to support the whole worker and allow more people who have been precluded from that opportunity, allowing them to participate in a way that is faithful, honest, and productive. Uh, I will say, uh, while we definitely want to increase opportunity, access, and participation, inclusion doesn't equal equity. You can look at this and see that while, again, opportunity access and participation are noble uh, ideals that we want to be including, they don't necessarily ensure equity in outcomes. And equity in outcomes is what we're looking for. We want people to be economically secure and we don't want them to feel that they entered into a program and then from there they were on their own. So if we're not looking at the outcomes, if we're not faithfully uh, coming back to our data, we're not coming back to our systems and thinking critically about how we address the needs of people, then we're not doing quite enough. As I close out, I want to say, you know, we know what works and we have data that supports what works. A W.K. Kellogg Foundation survey found that 25% of economic opportunity and growth was actually built upon and resulted from the reduction of occupational barriers for women and black people in between the years of 1960 and 2008. Owing that, and knowing that, I think we understand what the potential is and what we could be achieving if we work a little bit more strategically with our workforce partners and this workforce system and what we could really uh, create. Because I think uh, a slice of a $2.5 trillion economy would be a great thing to spread around to people uh, in the effort to extend opportunity and access. Uh, with that, you know, I'll stop there uh, very shortly, but I do want to make a note that I know we are all workforce development advocates in this room, but 
I think we all understand that while racial equity and inclusion in the workforce system is paramount in a lot of ways in this room and in this system, uh, workforce is one very small piece of racial equity and inclusion and equity. Uh, and it's an important piece if we're talking about closing gaps in income and employment and family wealth and a whole multitude of other things. But it's still just one piece. And it's a pivotal piece that we should refine as best as we are able. But we have to note that it is, again, a crucial piece, but just a slice of the pie. Uh, and with that, thank you. I love the idea of what you were talking about in your paper. Is, is there an um, ability to um, templatize it for other communities, for example, like the LGBTQ community, um, or work it in other ways that, that works for our community? That's really my question. Is, yeah. is it templatized, or well, can it be templatized? Sure. So I will say, I haven't seen the data, but I know anecdotally exactly what you're talking about. Right. And I think there's definitely a potential for all of the policy recommendations and the strategic recommendations that we have that can absolutely include the LGBT uh, community. We don't have the specific data on that, and that would honestly be a really exciting frontier, and I'd like to do that next. So thank you for putting that out there, because I'm going to bring that home. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about it after absolutely. the session. Yeah, yes. It's very close to my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your presentation. I was particularly struck by the apprenticeship wages slide. Uh -huh. Can you give us a little more information on that? Uh -huh. Is there a disparity in types of internships? Uh -huh. I just need an answer as to why that no, is. No, I understand. Yeah, it's a shocking number, because uh, we're talking about nearly double uh, for uh, exit wages for black apprentices versus exit wages for white apprentices, who were the next closest in exit wages. It went up from there. Um, so. It's a national survey that I referenced here, so uh, not um, something that wasn't included as you know, regional uh, diversity and where these different apprenticeships took place, who and what trades were included, um, minimum wage requirements depending on city and locality or state even, and whether there is a minimum wage requirement in the state. Um, and so there's a lot of underlying data in there and also, um, whether or not the participants were incarcerated at the time that they were participating in their apprenticeship, and that dramatically affects wages as well. Let's give uh, one final hand to Molly. Thank you so much, Molly. We really appreciate it.